The Let It Be album has been newly mixed by super producer Giles Martin, and he's on the line to tell us more about it. Good morning, Giles. Good morning, Zoe. How are you? I'm really good. I'm very excited to speak to you. Tell us all about this delight. Let It Be was quite a complicated album, released in 1970, almost a month after the band had broken up, and quite a lot of backstory here, Giles. Yeah, it, it was. It's a. It's. It was. It's known as the last Beatles album, but actually, in essence, about a year before it came out, the the, the band is a crazy decision because they hadn't been playing live. They hadn't done any touring. They decided to do. Okay, we're going to do a live show, and we're going to write songs. And we don't know where the live show is going to be. We're going to write a bunch of songs. That's, that's going to be our album. We'll record it. And they had two and a half weeks to do it because Ringo was about to do a film, which is a kind of a, you know, any band doing that now would be absolutely mad. And so they ended up playing on the rooftop of Savile Row and they didn't have enough songs and they sort of wrapped the project. And what happened was John and George, John Lennon and George Harrison went to Phil Spector after this, when the Beatles had kind of broken up and asked him to finish the album for them without Paul being happy about it. Yeah. Welcome to this week's When There's Fab. I'm Ed Chin. And I'm John Stone. Well, well, we finally got the box. We've been into the box now for a couple days. Yeah, marveling, wondering, trying to figure out what happened. Well, my first question, why do they have the box open on the left-hand side? Because Paul McCartney designed it? I don't know. (laughs) Could well be. You rip open the plastic on the left-hand side, and that's where the book and the fold-out with the discs falls into your hands right and interestingly enough neither the book nor the foldout have any writing on the spine it's just plain white just to make sure it doesn't confuse everybody that book is not the get back book that everyone's talking about and it's not the original get back book (laughs) right because let it be book falls apart (laughs) almost immediately (laughs) after about a week they use very poor glue yeah (laughs) right (laughs) somebody was given a budget and came in under budget. Maybe Capital just couldn't find cheap enough glue, so that's why they just didn't bother releasing it. (laughs) Canada got a copy of the original box. Mexico got a copy of the original box. Here in the States, nope, never happened. Hmm. And who was in control for the United States product at that point? Oh, I think that was Alan Klein. (laughs) Well, 
It would have been him in conjunction with the folks at Capitol. Anyway, what we're going to talk about this week is, uh, unlike All Things Must Pass, where we started in the middle, we're actually going to start at the beginning this time. <laughs> right, with the album as it came out originally. Although it's actually probably both the beginning and the end, because we're going to cover the album and we're going to cover the EP. Yes. So when did you first hear the Let It Be album? The day it came out. You were of age and you went to the record store and bought it and put it on the turntable. Absolutely. And my fandom at that point had graduated to Beatle Monthlies. So I, you know, I was at that point pretty clued in as to what was going on officially with the band and Apple. I knew to expect it. And when it came out, I, I got it. And, you know, I think the long winding road had been out for a week or two at that point. So you weren't here in town. Uh, you were still somewhere in West Texas? No, actually, I was in Houston at that point. But you didn't hear the acetate when it got played here. That was on KRBE in, like, March of 1970. No. I, okay. never, I never heard anything like that. We did a whole show on the various Glenn Johns mixes and how they leaked to various places around the country. Right. Some places got the first version and some places got the second version. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that more when we're actually talking about the Glenn Johns mixes, but the whole thing is a little spy mystery in and of itself. <laughs> right. It wasn't too long after that I heard the, the first bootleg. Come back. Yeah. I mean, yeah. those came off of the radio broadcasts. Yeah. Either Buffalo or Boston. Those were the first two markets that actually got the bootleg tapes. Right. As it always happens in collecting, I had that bootleg for a long time. It sounded terrible. It, I kept going, didn't anybody tune their guitars? It was just the way it sounded. And so I got rid of the bootleg in, in some trade some years later. Kind of wish I still had it. Now it's available legitimately. Yeah, right. I guess the first time I heard uh, Let It Be, as you had mentioned, the album was out of print for a good long while. Mm -hmm. UA didn't keep it in print. Yeah. I don't know what the sales of, of the album are as compared to other albums. It was a hit record. It was the Beatles after all. But For anybody else. But I don't know. Why would you stop? I mean, the album had three number one hits on it. So I don't really understand. I, I think that's United Artists. The amount of money they got was reduced. So it was a matter of diminishing returns. And then, mm. you know, as the label kind of devolved in terms of its value, they had to cut. Okay, well, this is no longer a big moneymaker for us. We just will take it out of print, particularly after Apple ceased to be. So there was nobody to say, no, we, we'd really, really like this to stay in print. Yeah. <laughs> hey, it's the Beatles. So kind of after the Apple deal fizzled out, uh, it went out of print for a good long while, and then Capital eventually bought UA's whole record division, and that was when it came back into print. I wouldn't have heard the whole record until, like, 78 or so. Ah, right. Were you a big radio listener? Reasonable enough radio listener. So there's songs from it you were familiar well, with? Well, sure. I you know I'd, I had the Blue album. Ah, yeah. So, you know, it's familiar with the hits but dig a pony or something wouldn't have been anything i'd heard until i actually got the record and in lieu of the full package and the the nice book albeit ones that falls apart we did get a reasonable sized poster that came with the uh, capital re-release of the let it be album 
of the cover just of the cover but yeah. it, you know it was all promotional poster size right so you know th- there's one thing which was kind of cool to have from the u.s version of the record yeah here we are we now have the giles martin remix general comments on what you think of this mix well i'm not afraid to say that i have been a fan of these remixes and continue to be because there's just an updated feel to the way they sound a separation that wasn't there and you could like the old way better but i like the way the record sounds so i have no complaints at all the one thing the stereo mix has done for me is it made me dislike what specter did even more well yes i would agree with that now that you can hear them even better the choirs and the orchestras and the extras that really for the most part don't need to be there really really don't need to be there it's great that they're better integrated that they actually sort of sound like a single recording now but they hurt the tracks i would have enjoyed in a way hearing a bonus bit of just mixes of what spectra added to each song because that would be interesting to me so it's just the orchestras just the stuff that he recorded in 1970 right which on let it be would include all of ringo's drumming and you know whatever was added along the way but uh because that would be interesting to me otherwise i'm used to the songs because they're the songs i've known for 50 years but i'm with you it's just kind of like oh man it shouldn't be that way now that's not to say that the glenn johns mixes are better and in fact one thing that we discovered in the uh press for this is that no one ever mastered any of the Glenn Johns mixes. The five copies of the tape are just the raw mixes. Right. Well, and that makes sense to me. I think I mentioned to you that before the Glenn Johns mixes, it didn't sound like records. It just sounded like a, a raw tape. and Collection of songs, yeah. Yeah. And so when I heard the Glenn Johns mix, which we're not talking about tonight, <laughs> It made me a fan of those. I like this record. I could see how it fits better into the instructions he was given what to create than Spectre's versions. And clearly Spectre was not told to stay within the parameters of the concept of the original project. Well, it's strange because Spectre neither dumped all of the we're doing it live in the studio feel nor kept a significant amount of it. It's like there's some songs where it is just the band live in the studio, and there's others where, okay, I have to put orchestras on it. There was a lot of musical press about what this project was going to be, and it was well known that the album was going to include dialogue between tracks. And so to just not do that at all probably would have had some sort of reaction because we were expecting this certain thing. So he kept part of it in, but you know, when they're in Apple studios, I don't know when the huge female choir walked in and yeah, all of that was in 1970s. So. Yes, exactly. So there was this idea of what this record was going to be and you know, they cheated some. Well, and Giles also doesn't seem to know quite what to do with all the joking in the interstitials because sometimes he mixes them up and sometimes he's mixed them down. Yeah. Queen says no to pot smoking FBI members. Again, on the original, 
you could pretty clearly hear John making that joke. Maybe it's a no longer politically correct thing to say, so that's why Giles mixed it out. Uh, I, I don't know. Anyway, my point is that he has retained all of the dialogue between the songs, but it, he has decided to mix it in different ways. You know, sometimes it's more or less audible. Yeah. And in particular, John says uh, F twice, and Giles seems to have been amused by that because he mixed it up both times <laughs> yeah but still on the whole you know he's following what was there with minor differences he can't really change the basis of the record yeah although this mix sounds the least like the original as opposed to the other mixes remixes he's done abbey road white album sergeant pepper yeah he seems to have had a little bit more freedom either from the band or just in his own mind to do what he thinks is right with these mixes maintaining the feel of specter without going to the letter yeah i also think that this record fits in with the other records he's mixed whereas to lean more to what specter was putting out there was more of a, a wash more of a wall and so that's the thing that giles didn't include the business which current listeners would not quite get not even necessarily the wall of sound the excess on the wall of sound <laughs> right to a point it's great and it's cool and then you go beyond it and it just turns to mud. Yeah, yeah. In the end, I, I like this record. I like what he's done. Two of Us, to me, sounds great. The different parts can clearly be heard, and I like the crispness of the acoustic guitars. And the vocals, and in some cases, the drums come through great and real clear, and in some cases, they're still a little bit buried in the mix, I think. In some, I thought, yeah, in Two of Us, that the kick drum, it was up, more which is a more of a modern sound before we leave the mixes in general i will say that the atmos mixes are significantly superior to the point stereo mix to my ears having that much more room to breathe you really can feel like you're there in the room with them giles is not playing any tricks he's trying to present a naturalistic soundstage you know i always like to hear the drums and ringo's right there in the middle on every track it feels like he's there in your head with you well i think that was to some degree what the beatles were looking for was the remembrance of the way they sounded in hamburg the immediateness and so i get that from some of these mixes even in this new stereo that's lost a little bit by mixing it for full surround giles got it right there i think even more right than he did in the stereo mix the stereo mix is better it's certainly better than the original specter mix and i like it comparably to the naked mix i think yeah i like the whole naked mix of the album yeah i was a fan of it. it's a little bare but in general i think that's the better stereo mix yeah and some of this is informed by what happened afterwards not just to the band but what happened in music so that you have to kind of go back to what the beatles were intending when they put this project together and how much of that survived you know there was this idea that they were not going to do all the strings and all the things that they had become famous for this was coming right off of the white album which had been just this wide ranging group of songs to the idea of 
we're going to be a bar band again and we're going to be honest and this is what we sound like. And so how much of that survived Phil Spector or even Glenn Johns? I think at the point of Glenn Johns, it, that's what they were still thinking. Yes. I don't know that anybody's done that kind of interview with him, but was there a, a change in what they were looking for? After hearing his presentation, you know, his mix. Well, there's certainly a change in what John Lennon was looking for. I don't think Paul ever really changed, although I don't know 100% that Paul was ever completely behind the uh, let's go all the way back to basics and play just us. No overdubs, no studio trickery. Yeah. Uh, Even though he fought for Let It Be Naked to strip all the studio trickery away, or I'm not sure that he was, as you said, really behind the idea to be that honest, because to a degree, McCartney liked adding little bits and pieces. Well, obviously, the next big thing that he would do is Abbey Road. (laughs) Right. And you look at side two, and that's what the whole thing is. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to the tracks uh, on the album. It starts off with two of us. John's vocal is a little bit rough, though. The harmonies aren't the best here, particularly in the first verse where John and Paul are trying to do that Everly Brothers thing. It kind of works, but they just don't mesh quite as well as they used to, as they used to in the old days. (laughs) Is that your criticism of the way it's always been? He didn't change the vocal. Uh, Giles did not change the vocal, and maybe it is something. Maybe it just sounds that way now. You know, maybe in this mix where you can more clearly hear all the intonation that John's putting in, it now no longer meshes quite as well as it did before, where the two were blended in some specific spectorian way. Yeah, you know, Phil was a champion of the whole back to mono thing, so I think he did put their vocals closer together one of the things i noticed in this new mix is that you hear john he has an affectation to his voice in this one where he's kind of going like this you know we're going home and that's more clear in this yeah it's not bad it's just Uh, it's just different i think it's something which comes out of this new mix and, and as i was saying the combination of the two voices works better in the atmos than it does in the plain stereo because you know john and paul are kind of separated in the stereo yes whereas in the atmos they're a little bit closer together in the mix and paul is also uh, i would say a little bit buried in that same first verse john's up a little bit more in in the first verse then they kind of even out the levels and they're closer together in volume and now i'm not sure whether that's always the way it was or whether that's something that Giles intentionally did here. Yeah. I can't remember thinking that they were separate voices, really. It was this duet, and you just knew that John and Paul sang great together, and so it worked. With the new mix... They're separate voices. It's, yes. Or, you know, again, at least through the first half of the song, it does kind of get back, no pun intended, uh, to the Everly Brothers style that they were shooting at in the back half of the song. Yeah. So do we believe that this is a song about Linda or is this a song about John and Paul? <laughs> um, or both. I mean, you know, it very well could be both. Yeah. McCartney liked concepts. And the concept of this was to get back, to kind of do what they did at the beginning. And so that being in his head, 
it's quite possible that it's about he and John. I mean, his story is very convincing, you know, that, that he and Linda would go off and drive in any old random direction, and she'd just say to get lost, and then they'd have their little adventures. And that, that was where the song originated. Right. Well, this song was, was ready by January, and Linda had moved to England and with Paul in mid to late September. So they hadn't been going out and about for long, and I think they spent some time in Portugal. Yeah. So to me, it's like when you sing something about you and I have memories longer than the road that stretches out ahead. That's a thing about John. That's, that's not a thing about Linda, obviously, because they're, they're newlyweds or almost newlyweds. Right. So I can see that knowing kind of what the concept was uh, that he would write about. It. It's just odd that if that was the case, that he never has admitted it. It could well be both. And Paul, whether he likes it or not, is always writing about John to a certain extent. <laughs> right. So the next track is the live version, the rooftop version of Dig a Pony. I think Giles did better on the rockers than he did on the mid-tempo or the ballads in the remixes. Yeah. You know, on this particular song, the riff with the bass, da 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 has more bottom to it. It's a heavier song for me because the old version, it was like the guitar was the thing. This is more bass and guitar, which makes it heavier for me. It's more of a rock song, and it actually fits in better with like get back later on yeah and you know george's parts on this song are really cool and come through really well at the very beginning we know from the video that ringo's got a cigarette in his hand he puts down the cigarette and he shouts hold it and then that's followed by a sound of a spray or something and what i guess is paul clearing his throat I had never noticed that second part of that <laughs> before the song starts. <laughs> One of those parts that got mixed up. <laughs> I still am not quite certain what was going on. I guess it could either be a, a breath spray or it could be I'm getting ready to sing, so I've got to moisten up my vocal cords a little bit here since yeah. we're stopping. Or maybe George was spraying uh, something on the neck of his guitar. Finger ease, you know. It could be. Uh, and then it ends with just a little bit of Danny Boy. Right which is also from the rooftop. And you can hear George also singing along here, which I couldn't necessarily hear before. It always just sounded like John making a crack, but you can very <laughs> clearly hear two vocals. Yeah, I'd really like to see the whole show. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming, just be a little bit patient. I'm running out of time, man. <laughs> <laughs> the next is Across the Universe, which is featured on the album just because John was playing it in some of the film that got into the movie. A real lethargic version. I kind of wonder why they didn't actually just try and redo it from scratch, unless John just wasn't into it. Or any of them. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it seems to me that John would have, you know, he's always said he was not happy with any of the Beatles versions. I mean, you know, he liked the what Spectre did to the song, but... You know, I think he would have jumped at the chance to do it again. They were going through all sorts of things just to see, will this work? Will that work? And they didn't work on Cross the Universe enough to make it work at all. Yeah, they just left it up to Phil. I think Phil ended up with it because it was going to be in the movie, that little part. And so they had to have a version to put on the soundtrack. And 
John wasn't coming back to do it, so. It's a little bit strange. I mean, there's lots of other songs they could have chosen instead of Across the Universe. I mean, they could have done All Things Must Pass. There were enough versions of that on film. They could have pulled that into the movie and then said, nope, George, you got to name your album something else. (laughs) We'll take that version for the soundtrack album. (laughs) Yeah, but Klein wanted to keep George happy. (laughs) Giles has done quite a bit with the orchestra and with all Spectre's work, and it actually works better than it ever has, I think, at least as a Spectre production. Yeah. One of the things that listening to this again made me wonder, and I don't know, you might know the answer. You know, there's a variety of things that got different overdubs, depending on what version you decide to listen to, whether it's one with the tambour and the sitar or the, the humming, um, or, or even John and Paul going, ah, you know. So there's those versions. And then I know John put a wah-wah on the song. But I don't know when the part that's at the very end, it sounds like a 12 string, where it goes dun, 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 dun. I don't know when that was put on. Is that a Spectre edition? Because I don't hear it on any other Beatle version. Let's see. Spectre had two days on Across the Universe the 2nd of October, 1969, and then another day in 1970. The 69 was the was the World Wildlife. And that, that wasn't Spectre, that was George Martin. Right. My bad. And then the 1st of April, 1970. There was some acoustic guitar that was recorded on that date. In April? In April. That's what it is. That's got to be where it was added. Question is who, does it say? Uh, it does not say, uh, but... It probably wasn't one of the Beatles because uh, Ringo's the only one that was there in the studio. Right. 18 violins, four violas, four cellos, one harp, three trumpets, three trombones, two guitarists, and 14 singers. 50 musicians in Abbey Road Studio <laughs> One. That's just amazing. <laughs> well, that's Spectre. An appropriate April Fool's Day thing. <laughs> yeah, well, now I understand why there was a contrapse about paying the musicians for doing extra you know it's like there's 50 of us and you want us to do a bunch of more for free next is uh i mean mine which is george's waltz yeah it's fine it's a nice little track it is and probably specter's least intrusive but it's still completely unnecessary <laughs> well yeah he was trying to earn some money I guess. I mean, he had, he had to do something. All of his extra bits just don't need to be there. The only really good thing he did was he lengthened it, so. Yeah. That edit works. It does. I had no idea until years and years and years later. When you listen to the Glenn Johns mix, which we'll get to at the end here, because we're also covering the EP, it just seems so short. Yeah. It wouldn't have worked in that fashion as a full song. Yeah. They could have put it with something else, do a mini medley type of thing. I mean, they were clearly thinking about that. You know, again, you had the rock and roll medley here on the Glenn Johns versions. I don't know what their thinking was because surely they were like, wow, that's really short. <laughs> In 62 and 63, you could get away with a minute, 33 second song. But it wasn't 62 and 63. <laughs> but they were trying to get back to that. Well, okay. I'll give you that point. Sure. <laughs> Normally they would have said, no, go write another verse, George. But here it's like, Oh, well, that would have worked on Please Please Me, so. Yeah. Then just a little snippet of Dig It. As we know, Dig It lasted 
forever. And on multiple days, amazing to me that that was like, let's do that again. As we now know, it was John doing what John does. You know, it's one of his list songs. Right. He names various people in the news. The more fun version is where he starts naming off Beatle people. <laughs> That's my favorite version of Dig It. <laughs> he was winding up for Give Peace a Chance later in the year. But that said, they recorded it more than once or recorded Stream of Consciousness more than once. Then you get the little falsetto. That was Can You Dig It by Georgie Wood. Now we'd like to do All the Angels Come. And it goes into Let It Be, the Spectre version of Let It Be. In which he added lots of stuff and had Ringo come in and play a good part. I question whether it was needed. You know, I like what he does on the single version. Yeah, that way is much more calm. Although, in context, when we got the preview a couple of weeks back, I was kind of thinking, oh, well, okay, yeah, it's a cleaner version of the Spectre version of Let It Be. But in context, it actually works with the rest of the record, I think. Some of the things I wasn't quite sure about, but it's like, okay, if we're going to listen to the record in this fashion, yeah, it fits, I guess. It's the record we've been listening to for 50 years. I don't, I mean, I have complaints about some of uh, Spectre's choices. But, you know, I still love the record. I, I don't know that I'm as critical as with necessarily George Martin as I am with Phil Spector. And again, Giles has done a good job of sort of splitting everything apart. Although there's a little bit like there is on Long and Winding Road where some of the backing vocals are possibly even... Uh, more overbearing here than they were on the Spectre version. Yeah. The girl backing vocals. And, you know, those additional voices, they had already come back in January, I think, and recorded with Linda Eastman and Mary Hopkin putting on backing vocals. It's a shame to bury Beatle harmonies. Uh, You know, (laughs) thankfully we have the single version. I guess it's on Long Winding Road that Spectre wiped a, McCarthy vocal track. Side one of the uh, record ends with Maggie May, which is an, an old Liverpool ditty. Yeah, it's hard for me to criticize a, a mix of that in, in any form. <laughs> it is what it is. Uh, one interesting thing about Maggie May that I found out. So right after Hard Day's Night, Alan Owen went on to write a, uh, a musical about Liverpool. And one of the songs in that musical is a full version of Maggie May. It was a traditional song. It, I just found it a little bit interesting that. Yeah. So, yeah, the soundtrack to this Alan Owen musical, which actually won a BAFTA, believe it or not. Hmm. Well, Alan Owen wrote. No Trams to Lime Street. Yeah. And then the song Maggie May, you know, talks about. Never walk down Lime Street anymore. Yep. There's another tie. Yeah. The, the soundtrack to that musical is actually available on YouTube, and I'll put a link up to it. Now the first time I saw Maggie, she took my breath away. She 
was cruising up and down in Garden Place. She had a figure so divine, her voice was so refined. Well, the inga said, or I gave chase. Now in the morning I awoke, I was flat and stony broke. No jacket, trousers, waistcoats did I find. Oh, when, oh, when, and ask her where, she said, My very good sir, they're down in Garden's pawn shop number nine. And the fish that could I get away from me And that jilty guilty founder For robbing a home of under She never worked on that swing anymore Oh, Maggie, Maggie May They have taken her away And she never worked on that swing anymore And that jilty guilty founder For robbing a home of under You dirty robbing no good Maggie May We flip the record, we get what is one of my favorites in the remix that's I've Got a Feeling. Yeah, that's... Uh... I mean, it kind of goes along with what I was saying before. Giles has a much better feel for remixing the rockers than he does everything else on the record. In this song in particular, the distinct separateness of the vocals really adds to it because you have John's song, Everybody Had a Hard Year, going against Paul's song, I've Got a Feeling. And that separateness for me was just like, oh, yeah, that's cool. It's not too buried. Yeah, it's sort of two pieces of sandpaper rubbing against each other. <laughs> right. They're not in a bad way. They go together, and you, once you get it just right, it's going to be perfectly smooth. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a good song. I like it. They had a good time doing it, I think. Big question, did George ever really get the part the way paul wanted it <laughs> now that's a question uh probably not i would say <laughs> well what's played is not quite the way paul described it but uh yeah that's the real reason why the beatles broke up this is one of those that if this were wings paul would have gone back in the studio and, and just done it himself <laughs> well you know at times during the course of the beatles i think paul would have gone back <laughs> and done it on his own but this was get back. They had no studio time. They had no one willing to sit there with them to perfect everything. Yeah, right. Then we move on to what is the real throwback, the real get back piece of this record. That's one after 909. Yeah. A real old song. I mean, it, it goes back 1960. It's on the May 1960s on the Grundig tape. Yes. So they had had this song around a long time. And they attempted to cut it, I think, in March of 63. For With the Beatles? It was part of a session for a single, I think. The previous version is a very Mercy Beat version. Very much. But it's good. Yeah. I, I can see why George Martin was like, eh, not yet. Maybe we'll hold on to this for, for another six years. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, we'll just put it aside and we'll never come back to it because you will begin to write this amazing stuff and, and you not want to do anything like that again. But, I mean, you know, of, of all the things that they were looking and thinking about, thinking of linking and I lost my little girl, they apparently just thought about every song they'd written that was in that notebook of John and Paul's. I personally, I'm sorry they didn't do thinking of linking. I've always thought, well, you know, that's not, not too bad. This is a 1969 version. I've always liked it. 
Yeah. In this song, we didn't know it at the time, but you could really see the way they changed because Paul was pretty much playing the, what he was did with a little bit more skill and finesse, I think. But what George was playing was completely different. So, you know, you could really hear how he had developed as a guitarist on this song. What they learned in the last six years. Yeah. That was the kind of duet singing that John and Paul did at that time. They pretty much nailed it here. Yes. It's, it was almost like they'd been singing it for a long time. but Which, of course, they had. But Well, did they? Don't know how often they would play one after nine and nine in their gigs. Maybe they did to some degree. But how much did they work on originals when they were a bar band? Probably not significantly until the last year at the Cavern, I think, was when they really sort of started putting originals into their act. You know, we say the last year of the Cavern, we're talking about all of 1962, basically. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, it's it seems like, oh, well, yeah, they were at the Cavern for a long No, they were really only a Cavern band for at most two years. Right. You read Lewison's book and you realize how fast it happened. It didn't seem fast to them in the beginning as they were kind of slogging through. But once they took off, it, things didn't last that long. So this is the rooftop version. Have we heard many of the studio versions? And uh, you know, because I know they worked on it in the studio, right? That that I'm really aware of. It, it, just an interesting yeah. point. Well, maybe we'll get more of that in Peter Jackson's film. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not aware of versions from the studio. We know that they were there working on it in the studio, the 28th, the 29th, the 30th. So there was at least three days in the studio that they were working on it in, in January 69. Keep in mind that they were, at that point, facing a hard end to the project, and that was pretty close to it. They're working, you know, what can we do for this show? So they didn't work on it a long time beforehand. They, it was just as they were working in the last as, Yeah, what, what do we have that's ready to go? Right. And again, from the trailer and from you know going through the album and going through the book, it's really like, yeah, they really did record this album in 10 days, basically. Yeah. Particularly when you think about how long the White Album had taken, how long Pepper had taken, it's like that really was a, a big accomplishment for them. And it cost them, I think. It was a hard slog, which is why the memory of it was that it was. I've wondered before what would have happened had McCartney kind of allowed the band to percolate a bit. Well, I mean, you know, particularly given that it wouldn't actually come out for a while. Although then what if they'd come back after Abbey Road while they were trying to figure out what they're going to do to the future? It's like, well, since we haven't released it yet, let's top off. Let it be now. Yeah. You know, if they'd gone into the studio and. October, November, December, you know, recorded a single that'd be out at Christmas and worked on Let It Be until they were ready to move on in 1970. Would that have worked? I mean, of course, John was, you know, fully on to other things at that point. Yeah. It might have been kind of hard to go into the studio and work on old music, knowing what had happened. Paul took to over drinking and retreated. Yeah, but then he, he wouldn't have gone off to Scotland had there been okay, let's go in and do some Beatles stuff in September of 1969. Right. Yeah, I mean, there were months there that they could have worked on it as opposed to <laughs> asking Phil Spector to come in. This is true. And, and actually, seeing what we've got, you know what I want after this? I want someone to do a documentary on what happened 
afterwards, the you know, bringing in Spectre, the whole let it be period as opposed to the get back period. Maybe Peter Jackson can, he doesn't <laughs> have the film, but maybe he can sequelize. <laughs> I want to see people talk about what was everybody thinking as they decided, okay, we're going to turn these tapes into a finished record now because we really don't know that no one of the questions for me is you know they they just come off of abbey road it was number one hail to this really really good record why didn't they ask george martin to finish this up mix it then we'll put it out as opposed to saying oh there's a whole bunch of tapes there somebody do something then we get long winding road which okay great it's very montavani but there's nothing new about that. You know, they did that on Good Night. They did. Had this come out and Good Night not come out, this would have been even more shocking. Because you know, up to that point, you had just the sensibility of the way George Martin arranged their music. He had kind of grown with McCartney. You know, McCartney would be like, I don't want those kind of strings, and I don't want any vibrato. And Martin kind of understood what, Paul's sense was and would have totally done this differently had he been given the task to somehow orchestrate it. But a Martin mix would. But we do get a Giles Martin mix. (laughs) And, you know, I think Giles didn't go as far as maybe he would have liked or Paul would have liked, but he did do uh, at least a good job in turning this into something quite a bit more listenable than the Spectre version. I mean, you know, I, I say that, and the Spectre version was a number one hit, so yeah. what does that mean? Get back, log a winding road, let it be. I mean, a lot of great songs on that album. It's hard to criticize. And even one of the songs I mentioned, to some degree, is were Phil Spectre's. So. Okay, we'll give that a pass, but... I would say this is a good version, and again, this is one where uh, I would go to the Atmos where you have a little bit more room in your soundscape, and it sounds better because even in the stereo here, things are kind of on top of each other a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) There's only so much room in a stereo soundscape. you got two ears. Well, I don't know how many musicians were on this one, but there's a lot of space taken up and all the stuff that Spectre added. Then George gets the next to the last track. Although this is, you know, kind of a throwaway from George uh, for you, blue. (laughs) It's fun, but it's a, you know, it's a little bit of a throwaway. Yeah. I mean, lyrically, it's not an amazing song, but that style of guitar playing, you know, always appealed to me. He, He did something similar in deep blue a couple of years later. And, He's several songs over the years where he plays kind of that acoustic style. So I always liked it. And taking the Mickey out of John slide. (laughs) Right. And who knew that John could play slide at that point? Yeah, Uh, it's fun. Giles hasn't done too much to it. I don't think. Yeah. Well, you know, McCartney's on piano. There's no bass guitar there. There was already room in this mix. So he didn't really have to do too much. Spectre didn't go adding an orchestra on top of this. (laughs) Right. (laughs) <laughs> I wonder if he had to be held back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's interesting. We go through these songs. It's kind of at the top and the bottom. It's like, well, we'll leave the opening of the record and the end of the record less specterized. <laughs> in the middle, we'll just throw on all my choirs and orchestras and harps and things. Right. Because the last song on the album is... Get Back. Right. Uh, there's not much you can do, although... Uh, I think Giles did did a real good job with Get Back. Both the stereo and the Atmos, 
you put it in your ears, Ringo's drumming, you get a much better feel for Ringo's drumming. And what I got was a real good understanding of what McCartney was saying in 321 about how it was when Ringo came in with that beat that the song came together entirely. Yeah. An inspired part took that simple song, which was kind of a lope, you know, and that drum beat was just perfect. Yeah. It turned it into something more. It turned it into a classic is really what happened. Turned that, it into music you could roller coaster by. <laughs> That's the thing. You put the four of them together. One of them would come up with something which made it genius. Yeah, sure. And then when, we're, when they were clicking totally, then all four of them would put things in that were genius. So. Absolutely. That would be the best of all worlds. Then we move on. We've got some extra tracks here, although not You Know My Name, Look Up the Number, which we've already spoken about. It's like, <laughs> why isn't this here? <laughs> Yeah, and you can see reasons why it's not, but it's like, so when do we get it, you know, in the Magical Mystery Tour box? <laughs> uh, who knows? It starts out with the Glenn Johns mix of Across the Universe, which both this and the his version of I, Me, Mine were first available on his fourth version, which is one of the ones which is bootlegged less of the, the Get Back. Yeah, I like this version. It's pretty simple. It's much more Indian feeling. But, it, you know, it has uh, Lizzie and Galen. Um, yep. And John's vocal is very clean. It's probably cleaner than even the other versions that use the same basic take. Yeah. This is almost <laughs> kind of John Lennon solo track, you know? Yeah, it's almost an unplugged version of yeah. Across the Universe. Yeah. And I like it. It's, it's nice. It's good. Uh, you you know, know, I, I'm very glad we have this one. Yeah. Someday I'll have the technology to put together all the little parts that I really like <laughs> into my version of Across the Universe. It's really minus all the bombast that we might get in, well, certainly in the Spectre version. <laughs> yes. That's the picture you see when you look up the word bombast would be Bill Spectre. <laughs> Long, winding road and across the universe. That's what it says in that little picture under the dictionary. <laughs> the next track, the Glenn Johns mix of I Me Mine. Uh, the sound is not great. I would say it came off of an acetate. Well, that may be why, to my ear, it sounds kind of crispy. It's short. There's not much you can say about it because it's just like two verses and this cool little rocking thing. And I kind of like the version of it without all of Spectre stuff. But it's just, there's just not enough there. I mean, you know, like I say, it makes you appreciate the Spectre edit. That's the one thing that actually worked. Yeah. Well, and of course, so did Paul. I mean, that's why the naked version is the longer version. It's not this version. It's the one thing of Spectre he accepted was that edit. That had a little bit of chat, what, George asking Ringo if Ringo was ready. Yeah. That goes into the next song, which has a nice sort of amusing bit of chat before it. Yeah, Paul asking John, what's up your sleeve? Yeah, but this isn't the help me come screaming in version no. is the dialogue right before this version seems to me to be almost scripted <laughs> like like it was played for the camera another song right okay george how about uh what have you got up your sleeve john uh, what about don't let me down yeah that's a bloody hey, good uh, one uh, don't let me down blues again don't let me down 
the road again, blues. Short fat fanny, you're my desire. Come on, boys. Come on. Zap Munsley. I'm not sure what Paul means by zap monthly. I mean, the only thing I can think of is a zap from Hard Day's Night with the hairdryer. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. Uh, we know that they had a Beatles monthly on the table with them. Maybe it had something to do with that. Right. They were reviewing the latest issue while they were working in the studio. That then leads into uh, Don't Let Me Down, the remix of the single. Right. I love the single. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's great. John's voice is very much to the fore. Yeah, I, this is great to have. It's a little bit on the raw side, but not so much as to be distracting. What do you mean on the raw side? His singing just goes a little bit raw, a little bit almost sort of Dylan-esque. Not right. quite screaming, but maybe not really what he had wanted exactly. But I don't know. Yeah, I don't hear that. This was a big record for me, and I've I've always listened to it thinking, well, that's pretty perfect. <laughs> uh, uh, and then the other thing about this mix, it sounds like there's just a little bit of double tracking on on that I'm in love for the first time, and it's like, yeah, really? absolutely. Okay. It was definitely there on the single. Here it's there, but it seems to be mixed down some. But it, you can still tell this double tracked. Yeah. You know, I don't have any complaints with this mix at all. It was just, this is a great thing to have. Giles did good. That seems to be my comment about this whole disc, is that Giles could do basically no wrong on the rockers. <laughs> right. You know, you can complain about everything else, but the rockers he gets right. <laughs> then to close out this disc, we get the single version of Let It Be, which I like. I you know. the, did he get this right? I think he did get this right. Yeah. And as you were saying, you know, Ringo's original drum part is great. Yeah. I'm not sure why it needed to be enhanced with all that Tom work, but because it fits the song. I do slightly miss Spectre's, you know, the cymbals, the ever echoing cymbals, but that's a choice. Yeah. And I think it's valid in either way. This was my version because this was the single. This was the hit. It was several more months down the road before you got the soundtrack and got a different version. So this is the one which makes me complain about the Spectre version. You know, John and George's harmonies are just perfect. And then in the Spectre version, they're just covered up. Yeah. Are we supposed to giggle in the solo? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What? Whatever, John. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> j- just do it. <laughs> Yeah, so I like this a lot. This is another good one to have. Did a good job on this. You can hear McCartney's muffed piano chord a little clearer. You hear John's bass, for better or for worse. Yeah. Does it bother you? The bass? Yeah. Not quite enough to bother me, but it's still like, other than on Helter Skelter, John just didn't care about playing bass, did he? I don't really know, because it's hard for me to hear that and go, Ah, there's something wrong with the bass. Just because that's the way you're used to it. I guess, but there was there's nothing in it that made me go, wow, that's weird. Or I've read any you know, of the accounts where it says hey, there's a, a misstrike on you know the third beat on bar thirty-two. And yeah, I can hear that, but it doesn't affect how the bass part works. I think it's a little bit I won't say unprofessional, but I think it is clearly a non-bass player playing bass. That's someone who is primarily a guitar player 
playing base. Right, but does that make it wrong? If he was hitting wrong notes, they'd be like, well, <laughs> we can't keep that. That sucks. But he, he didn't hit wrong notes, and there was some things he slid to. But I don't really hear any place that uh, I find incorrect. That may well be why Paul just didn't come in and replace the bass part, because he could have done so. He could have. He had the time. And the ego. <laughs> this as well. So, you know, I say that and that's really not true because I, I think Paul was trying to keep it all together. He wasn't going to be stepping on toes that he could avoid, but he could have had that been an issue. But yeah, okay. So a guitar player was playing bass. George did it on She Said, She Said. I mean, they all switched instruments around. But George seems to put a little bit more care into playing the bass, I think. Even though he didn't like it, I mean, we, he he didn't like it. He didn't like it all the way through his solo career when he had to do a bass part. I, I just don't know, as a group of four musicians, them kind of switching around on things is going to be l- less than. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question, and I think I agree with you. All things considered, this is the better version to the Spectre version. Although, uh, yeah. again, I like the guitar solo. I like Spectre's chosen guitar solo over this one. Yes. This one is the second. Didn't uh, Spectre have access to a third? So there were three George solos then. And the one that's on the album is one of the George solos in... this here is the other George solo. And there was the solo that's in the movie. like the one that was there or they or he or whatever wasn't satisfied with the one in the movie and then cut another one which i think was in the mid 69 uh april 69 yeah wow and then another one in 1970 they were on a bunch during january 69 and then then there was one day in uh, april 69 and then one day in january of 70 that they did various things right so okay yeah. so that's the ep and that is the main disc and the uh, the extra, the bonus tracks off of the Let It Be box set. Next week, we move on to, uh, what do you want to do? You- the thing that I liked the best about this whole set was the Glenn Johns mix. Let's do it next.
Okay, so next week we'll be back with the Glenn Johns mix. It'll be fun. Uh, which is not really mix one, but it's sort of mix one. Oh, right. Yeah. They've taken a couple liberties with the uh, first Glenn Johns version. <laughs> but they're allowed. Yeah. All right. Very good. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, we'll see you next week. Bye. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beast or Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. about the new version of the long and winding road Giles a lot of controversy about the song and the way it was mixed and released yeah so this was this was originally recorded um, in Savarone in January 1969 and then later on about a year and a bit later Phil Spector took it and added strings and choir um, without Paul really knowing or being there. And Paul likes to be very, very involved in his arrangements my dad you know to go on the rugby they would sit down and my dad would work through it with him he wrote a very strong letter to the Beatles saying, you know, don't do this again. And I actually called up Paul before we did this saying, listen, do you really want me to remix this? Because um, because you, you weren't happy to begin with. And he goes, well, let's face it, you can't change history because you turn the harp down a bit. <laughs> um, I never like the harp on it. And we actually put the strings back through Abbey Road to give it more of a sort of Beatles sound. And Oh, wonderful. Free. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Yeah.